I am the true self in the heart of every creature, and the beginning, middle, and the end of their existence. Among bodies of water, I am the ocean. Among the great seers, I am Brigu, and among words, the syllable Om. Among mountains, I am the Himalayas. I was born from the nectar of immortality, and of all that measures, I am time. Of water creatures, I am the crocodile, and of rivers, I am the Ganges. I am the silence of the unknown. Just remember that I am, and that I support the entire cosmos with only a fragment of my being. Hello. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about the Bhagavad Gita. To begin with a couple quotes of the day from two Americans, this is Ralph Waldo Emerson's description of the Bhagavad Gita. It was the first of books. It was as if an empire spake to us, nothing small or unworthy, but large, serene, consistent, the voice of an old intelligence, which in another age and climate had pondered and thus disposed of the same questions which exercise us. Thoreau also praised the Bhagavad Gita, and describes it this way, The reader is nowhere raised into and sustained in a higher, purer, or rarer region of thought than in the Bhagavad Gita. Beside it, even our Shakespeare seems sometimes youthfully green and practical merely. And for more about the wisdom and the many splendors of this Ancient and sacred text, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So, so, <laughs> Claire Akerbrand, author of The Field is White and What Was Left of the Stars, artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we read the Bhagavad Gita this week, and this is a follow-up from our conversation about the pearl. We ended our conversation about that book talking about how the same actions can have very different motives. Some of those motives good, some of them bad. Mm-hmm. This line from Hamlet came to my mind. There's nothing good or bad, but think, thinking makes it so. Mm-hmm. And in the Pearl, you know, we talked about the desire for progress or, or even basic material comfort. Is it bad to desire that? Kind of yes and no. Mm-hmm. Also reading, you know, you can read for selfish or self-interested reasons. Or you can read for the sake of reading or, you know, more selflessly. Even this podcast I thought of as a good example, like you and I have chosen to continue doing this because we like it for its own sake. Yeah, we don't have a huge uh, listenership. (laughs) We don't promote this in any way. I mean, I'm not on social media in any form. Yeah. So so we are doing this because it has inherent benefits for us. But there are many other aspects of life, many other actions that we take in which, you know, the desire for rewards or attention or 
profit becomes a kind of poison. And so I thought we should read the Bhagavad Gita because this is one of its central themes. Do you want to, in a few sentences, describe the context of this book? It's an excerpt from a larger work, the Mahabharata, I think. Mahabharata, right. Which uh, is like 12 times longer than the Iliad. Apparently. I've never read it. Right. Um, the uh, Bhagavad Gita, the book itself, fits into that larger epic and uh, at a very decisive moment where a battle is about to be fought. Arjuna um, has hesitations, obviously, in fighting against his own family because there is, uh, I, I don't remember the exact details, but basically parts of his family are going for a dictatorship and right. he wants to, he needs to fight that. It's a kind of civil war, I, apparently. Again, I've never read this Mahabharata in full, but yeah, brother against brother kind of violence. So he obviously has hesitations. He's very scared, and um, and at this moment, um, his charioteer, Krishna, reveals himself as God, and they have this beautiful dialogue in which Arjuna is able to ask him some of the most important questions of life. Mm. Basically, there's this odd pause on the battlefield mm. where this book takes place in 700 verses. And it is very much like the Iliad in that it is... About two and a half thousand years old. I mean, roughly, it's hard to date. Yeah. And its author is unknown, mm -hmm. very much like Homer. Um, probably the product, at least in part, of an oral tradition. Um, right. There might be several authors, right? Right, yeah. And the Bhagavad Gita may have been a pre-existent work that was kind of attached to the Mahabharata. But yes, you're right. There's this wonderful pause. It's like, and it's just Krishna and Arjuna conversing. Mm -hmm. Arjuna asking question after question and Krishna being extremely patient. I love Arjuna in, for many reasons, but one of them is that he is hes a warrior. He's a soldier. He's not a contemplative. He's not an intellectual. It takes him a long time to kind of grasp what Krishna is telling him. So I feel very comfortable reading in the shoes of Arjuna because some of these concepts can be quite difficult to grasp and Arjuna is wonderfully one, he's wonderfully confused. Especially considering the moment in time they are in. Yeah. We can take this as a metaphor. We don't have to read this war as historical or literal. In fact, um, many interpreters of the Bhagavad Gita emphasize that this war is a symbol for the war within us, the war between, what would you say, Claire? If, the, if, this, if this is a symbol for the battle within us, what are the, what are the opposing forces? Maybe the war between... The self and selfish desires. Mm. Yeah. Most, I think selfish desire maybe is the most prominent enemy in the book. Probably, yeah. The true divine self and the kind of egoistic desire yes. that craves and craves and is never satisfied. Mm -hmm. I thought we should start by talking about Krishna, the character of Krishna, who, and trying to define him. There's this wonderful moment in chapter 8 when Krishna is kind of describing himself and he says, the Lord is the supreme poet, the first cause, the sovereign ruler, subtler than the tiniest particle, the support of all, inconceivable, bright as the sun beyond darkness. I like this word inconceivable, and I wanted to start with that as a kind of disclaimer that we'll be talking about Krishna and we'll be attempting to define him and to describe how the book describes him. But 
part of how the book describes him is as inconceivable. So if it seems like we're kind of floundering to put words to this being or entity or force or essence, we're not alone. Right. Do you have anything to say about his indefinability? Only that I find it very pleasant. I love the chapter in which he goes on and on about what he is, but only making it more confusing and mysterious himself. The closest he ever gets in describing himself in any sort of a lucid way is the kind of changeless, perfect part that of that is in every person and in yeah. everything. Yeah. And we'll we'll kind of emphasize all of those points. This is this this edition of the Bhagavad Gita translated um, by Eknath Eswaran has a helpful glossary. And this is how the glossary itself defines Krishna. Etymologically it's related to uh, words for black, so and also the verb to draw or attract. So Krishna is defined as the dark one or he who draws us to himself. And I love that the surprising darkness there. And I th- I love darkness because, for example, the night, because it allows for more mystery and a greater, and for your imagination to really blossom, you know what I mean? And I think in many ways, Krishna in this book too, allows for a lot of mystery. And it's a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. Mystery, this is a very strange mix between clear and mysterious. Yeah. Which we'll get to. But the the definition here continues. Krishna is the name of an incarnation of Vishnu. Vishnu, the cosmic force of goodness, comes to earth as Krishna to reestablish dharma or law. Krishna is the friend and advisor of the Pandava brothers, especially Arjuna, to whom he reveals the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna is the inner lord who personifies spiritual love and lives in the hearts of all beings. And uh, in chapter 4, Krishna himself says, I am the Lord who dwells in every creature. I'm taking that literally. Do you have any, again, without presuming that we can pin this down precisely, what's your sense in which this is literally true? Well, this is all very, very complicated slash deep stuff, but, and I don't want to sound too... It is and it isn't, though. That's the thing. Yes. But... Because we're talking about, in many ways, very abstract things, I'm hoping that I'm able to (laughs) find the right words, but it rings true for me because I've always felt, even since I was a kid, that there is um, seemingly something within every person, all people I've ever met, a kind of goodness, something um, almost, something that feels immortal and immutable almost, that if we could just tap into that, if you can learn to tap into that more and to also recognize it in other people more, there would be so much more love and compassion and mm. and meaning and purpose in life. Mm-hmm. I kind of veered away from what you were actually asking. No, me. you didn't. Cre- cre- the character of Krishna, apparent, I mean, I'm following the lead here of other interpreters, and not to mention the text itself, what Krishna himself says about himself. His embodiment as Krishna is... is not his true essence. He is, in fact, the cosmos. It's everything, yeah. And is embedded inside of every part of the cosmos. Um, I read something once. I think it was Jane Hirschfield. It was in an essay of hers. should have found it, but I just remembered. She talks about metaphors and why they are 
so important and so meaningful to us, it's because um, it kind of highlights this idea. Mm. There's a union in all things, even in very seemingly different things. You can find, you can compare almost anything to another thing, and that's a very hopeful thought. <laughs> yeah, I am the walrus. <laughs> I am you, and you are me, and here we are all together. I mean, the Beatles, you know, like many people in the 60s, were drawn to this Eastern mysticism for, in part because of this idea that there is a unity of all things. And why is that good? Well, my favorite encapsulation of this idea is from Percy Bysshe Shelley in his Elegy to Keats. Keats, a poet Shelley loves, has just died, and in this elegy, Shelley says, the one remains, the many change and pass. So yes, there are many things that come and go. Every object, in a way, seems transitory, and mm -hmm. entropy seems ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. But n nothing truly falls out of existence. People that you love die. The elements of their body are dissolved into the earth, and like Whitman would remind us, become leaves of grass and have new life. You know, So mm. nothing can ever disappear. That's why it's consoling. Because nothing can ever disappear. Things change, but they don't die. So Krishna comes to Arjuna as an embodied charioteer. Mm -hmm. And we can talk more about the symbolism about that in a minute. But in chapters 10 and 11, he reveals his full essence, his full splendor to Arjuna. And right. I wanted to read a little bit of this. Do you want to just read the underlined bits of 10 and 11? There's this like giant litany in which Krishna describes who he actually is or what he actually is. Yeah, I, this one, chapter 10 was actually my favorite chapter. So Arjuna is like, how should I meditate to gain constant awareness of you? I can never tire of hearing your immortal words. And I love that he just said that because now there comes this long, like you said, litany of of things um, which Krishna probably gives to Arjuna because he said, I can't tire of your words. So, um, for example, he says, I am the true self in the heart of every creature, Arjuna, and the beginning, middle, and the end of their existence. Among bodies of water, I am the ocean. And I love this. Among the great seers, I am Brigu, and among words, the syllable Om. Among mountains, I am the Himalayas. I was born from the nectar of immortality, and of all that measures I am time. Of water creatures I am the crocodile, and of rivers I am the Ganges. I am the silence of the unknown. And then he ends that with, but what use is it to you to know all this? Just remember that I am, and that I support the entire cosmos with only a fragment of my being. And in fact, if I can brag for a minute about our son, I was uh, in a very nerdish way talking to them, talking to our kids about the Bhagavad Gita and explaining and reading bits about this section where Krishna describes himself. And I asked Isaac to go draw a picture of Krishna, and he came back with a blank sheet of paper, which I thought was, well, genius. But of course, I would think that. And here... Yeah, we'll so come that, back so that, that was a response. Arjuna says, tell me who you are. And then now Arjuna asks, well, show me your true self. So this is when Krishna kind of unveils. Right. Um, he says, behold, Arjuna, a million divine forms with an infinite variety of color and shape. Behold the entire cosmos turning within my body. 
Having spoken these words, Krishna, the master of yoga, revealed to Arjuna his most exalted lordly form. He appeared with an infinite number of faces, ornamented by heavenly jewels, displaying unending miracles and the countless weapons of his power. And Arjuna says, I see infinite mouths and arms, stomachs and eyes, and you are embodied in every form. I see you everywhere, without beginning, middle, or end. You are the lord of all creation, and the cosmos is your body. You lap the worlds into your burning mouths and swallow them. Filled with your terrible radiance, O Vishnu, the whole of creation bursts into flames. Well, this is, the, this is where Krishna says that famous, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, or another translation, I am time, the destroyer of all. So I like time more. Why do you like that? It's not as limited, you know, Nor, not so negative. Yeah. I am time, which also happens to destroy you. Yeah, but it's not not negative, too. Right. But it seems a little bit more... Um, yeah, because time implies this cycle of rebirth. Exactly. Um, I'm death is so final, right? <laughs> so, um, I love this idea that Krishna is a million divine forms with an infinite variety of color and shape, and that the true vision of Krishna is to see a million, to see an infinity of faces. Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine Arjuna having this vision and seeing in this panoply of faces my face and your face. You know, we were in that vision. Mm-hmm. Part of Krishna is you. And part of Krishna is me. So for Arjuna to see Krishna as he really is, he sees you and me. He sees you and me right now doing this. All faces. Beautiful faces, ugly faces, so ordinary. A, yeah, there's this, I don't want to call it pantheism necessarily, but there, it has a pantheistic element to it. This reminder that things deserve to be glorified because they exist. Because yeah. they partake in this divine essence. Because they are fragments of this sacred totality right and there is no black and white there it's arjuna must have seen the faces of many of his enemies you know yeah it's a very um to use a um phrase from the bible he's not krishna is not a respecter of persons or things all things have such great worth right. in this vision and it's a vision of the unity of life like we like like we've said somewhere else krishna says they live in wisdom who see themselves in all and all in them mm. so we are all part of the one interconnected substance of the universe i know and i love i love that idea because you could think of it in a negative way you could think well i don't want to have anything in common with a detestable person with some evil person right yeah but um when you start to think about that you are in everything and everything good or bad is in you, then it's even more amazing to realize that once you followed the advice in this book and the wisdom that you can reach a kind of peace and and goodness, even though everything is in you. I mean, isn't that amazing? Yeah, we're going to get to the practical bit. So we're, we, we've started with the kind of cosmic metaphysical bit, and then we're going to move into the practical, because it's a kind of practical guide to, to how to live also, this book is. Right. I know, just, very practical and very accessible. But before we get there, just to emphasize this divine unity and this divine essence of all beings, I read um, with my students just last semester parts of the Brothers Karamazov in which Father Zosima has this Shocking claim that we are responsible for the guilt of, we are responsible for the sins of all men. 
the chain of cause and effect is so interconnected and so endless that we can't know what we're responsible for everything, basically. Mm-hmm. We send ripples out into the universe that basically have no end. Mm-hmm. So with these two different traditions coming at this one essential tr- truth from different directions, I think this is in a sense true. You know, we all we are all part of the universe. The emissions that our car puts out, the dietary choices that we make, mm-hmm. the, you know, saying saying something slightly grumpy to someone on the street or to someone that you love. These are all dominoes that knock other dominoes over and over and over. Right, like the uh, idea of karma, which, of course, um, I never really understood before I started reading this book or I know, but you know, a, the introduction. I didn't true, really have a... It's a true idea, though. Right. We live in a sequence of consequences and um, assume that you have control over what happens in the future. Well, Christ says it best when he says, as you sow, so shall you reap, you know? That's karma. That's what karma that's the doctrine of karma. And I think it's a true doctrine. We don't always see sometimes there's decades between the sowing and the reaping. So it's not as if we see karma in action all the time because of this time delay. But we are what we eat, we become what we desire. I mean, there are many aphorisms, many truisms, almost cliche, from many different traditions that encapsulate this idea. What you pursue, you are, you know. But what about the idea of uh, doing everything without thinking about the results? Okay, well, that takes us into this practical element, which, yeah, I think we should tackle one idea at a time here. So we've talked about the metaphysical the kind of we've established that all things are divine and part of this universal oneness, but being presented with these ideas as a soldier, remember Arjuna is wondering, should I go kill my cousins in this battle? Shouldn't I just not do anything? How should I act? How should I live? There's a nice little Hamlet moment there. Oh yeah, it's not a lot. I mean, it's not that similar to Hamlet, but that was well, kind it- of the first thing I thought when I started reading this. I thought, oh, interesting. He's on the battlefield, but he's like delving into these crazy mental realms. Yeah, he is a different person from Hamlet, but he's in an analogous situation. He's mm-hmm. been he's been told to commit violence, and says within his family within his family, and says I don't really want to. I don't think I should. Yeah. And Krishna, surprisingly, I'm I've read this a few times. I'm usually surprised when I remember that Krishna advises him to keep fighting. You would expect the message to be nonviolent. You know, it is your duty to abstain. So, right. But at the same time, he would be doing a good thing. He would be saving people from being tortured, and so it's not like yeah. So how do we act? I mean, we have many. That's right. We have many daily choices and large, grand scale life choices. And how do we know what to do? Yeah. Um, and the Bhagavad Gita is in part a manual on how to live. Yeah, it's very duty oriented. Well, let's talk about that. In chapter 9, Krishna says, quote, whatever you do, make it an offering to me. Mm-hmm. So this is con- consistently the answer that Krishna gives Arjuna. Mm-hmm. You have to act in the world. Whatever action you take, there's kind of two main pieces of advice that Krishna gives to Arjuna. Make it an offering to me and make it a selfless act. Mm-hmm. We should unpack those two precepts. Right. A wrong motivation for Arjuna to want to fight this battle would be to gain power or wealth or fame. It's quite anti-Homeric in that sense. The Homeric heroes fight for 
What I what I think is a noble reputation, and in fact, we might want to end this conversation by talking about a few legitimate objections we could have to this to these doctrines and these precepts. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily wrong of Achilles, for example, to want to be sung about after he dies. You know, relating back to how we began this conversation, there's an mm-hmm. evil version of that desire, but I still think there's a noble version of that desire. Anyway, Krishna's advice is no. Pay no attention to the rewards of your work. You're, you have the right to action, but you do not have the right to, the, to care about the fruits of your actions. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to, or can you have, do you have an example for your own life of what it means to work without being attached to the rewards? Well, there's about a million times throughout the day when I'm confronted with this. For example? Social media. I'm an artist, so I paint a lot. And, you know, as I finish a painting, I usually post it on Instagram. And, you know, that's where I also sell my art. And that's also where I like sharing it. So it's always like, is it a bad thing to want to share this? Is it a bad impulse Will people like it? <laughs> I shouldn't care if they like it, but I also want to share it because it feels good to share your happiness with other people yeah. or whatever you want to call it. And so there's always this conflict. And then, of course, if somebody likes it, if somebody comments on it, it kind of validates me. And if you get more likes for one painting, it make, kind of makes your day and you know? it makes you happy. I this know. is natural. Right. These are all natural. So. so here, so in 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 chapter two, Arjuna asks that wonderful question to Krishna that I'm going to ask you now. Right? Remember, he asks Krishna, like, "Tell me about these people who have attained." Um, how does he phrase it again? Arjuna says in chapter two, "Tell me of those who live established in wisdom, ever aware of the self, O Krishna. How do they talk? How sit? How move about? Wonderfully, kind of." I love Arjuna's like, let's get down to earth here. Who, what do these people look like? How do I recognize them? And how are they different from me? So I'm going to ask you now how an artist who has an Instagram account moves around and sits down and talks, who has attained, who has become established in wisdom, who has become able to detach herself from the rewards of action. Are you asking me what I think? Yeah. What is this thing that Krishna says we should aspire to? Because he he would tell you, you must paint. And you must share your painting with people. That's part of the selfless. You have to do work in the world that benefits others. Right. So he would want you to paint and he would want you to share painting. But what would it mean and what would it look like? And how would this person behave who does that, but without being attached to the rewards? I would say it's a person who... They give their whole heart to the to the actual work of the painting, and they follow what they you know they do their own best in the way they can, and not somebody else. Uh-huh. And then when they go to post it <laughs> on Instagram, they don't sit there and wait like to see what happens. You know who will like it, who will comment, if somebody wants to buy it. They will continue to go about their day being useful. Mm-hmm. And purposeful. Maybe they will continue working or whatever. And then, you know, not be preoccupied throughout the rest of the day with what is the result of me posting this thing online. And then, you know, when they go back online, maybe they'll see different comments and, you know, compliments might give them joy. And maybe there'll even be some criticism and it won't affect their whole worldview. Yeah. And they'll continue doing their work to the best of their ability. 
I think you've summarized it really well. Krishna gives us the metaphor of a candle flame, and his goal that he gives to Arjuna and consequently to us is to have this candle flame in a state of equanimity and peace, mm-hmm. not flapping about in the wind of the wind of praise and the wind of of disappointment or fear. Right. I mean, praise can be as uh, detrimental as yeah as criticism because if somebody you know says something wonderful gives you an amazing compliment, then you might be like, oh, well, maybe I don't need to paint for the rest of the week. I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll uh, get lazy for a while. Krishna emphasizes that it's not, his advice isn't not to experience joy, mm-hmm. but to not be attached to it. I think the word attachment or detachment is a, is a key motif in this text, right? If joy comes, savor it. Right. When it leaves, don't throw a fit. Right. Be like that candle that can say goodbye to joy without freaking out. Right. And that can accept the arrival of pain or disappointment without freaking out. Right. Just like this is kind of something I've practiced a little bit with um, mindfulness. As negative things come up, something that you might be afraid of, you take a moment and basically offer up your willingness to feel that thing. You're willing to feel it as you experience good and bad things. You're willing for them to come and go. This is why I think it's great that um, this is where I think the metaphorical resonance of Krishna as the chariot driver really has an impact on me. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this metaphor, like why he's driving a chariot. But one of the things this implies to me is that the the divine... How is Krishna defined again? (laughs) He's inconceivable. The divine... The inner Lord, right? The the cosmic force of goodness um, is in charge of your life. It's kind of love of fate, amor fati, right? This Latin is in charge of your life and is pulling you. And you can fight this driver, or you can trust that the driver knows where he's going and let him drive. So if he takes you down a road that you don't like, you can fight and protest and whine, or you can say, "I trust you." This is if this is the road for me, then it's the road for me. If you're stuck in traffic for three hours, I mean, this becomes literal. It's a great metaphor because so often it's literal. If you're stuck in traffic for three hours, I'm not capable of this, of course, but apparently it's possible to say to the universe, thy will be done, kind of. You know what I mean? To use Christian terminology for a minute, thy will be done. This is what Krishna wants for me at this moment. Then this is, I will accept this. Mm-hmm. You know, we're being driven. And the sooner we give up the reins, the sooner we can, I think, embrace a fuller psychological health. With some more things to say about meditation and attachment, but anything else you have to say about Krishna as charioteer? Why is that so great? First of all, it's a very humble image. He is the one serving Arjuna, right? Yeah. Um, So that's a beautiful image right there. The love that he has for him comes through in that way. And and also what what you said... Um, he kind of leads the court, leads Arjuna through life, but at the same time, it also makes me wonder where fatal fatalism comes in. How, like, how do you not kind of sit back in a chariot, so to speak, and just think, "Well, I can't control anything, so I'm just gonna." Well, that's why I think it's very important that Krishna says to Arjuna, "You have to act." Yeah. 
not act because Arjuna wants to sit back and abstain from the battle. And Krishna mm-hmm. says, no, 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 that would be a kind of sin. Mm-hmm. You have to act and do what you can in the world. He, Krishna says, whatever you do, make it an offering to me. I, um, and then in chapter 18, he says, by performing one's own work, one worships the creator who dwells in every creature. Such worship brings that person to fulfillment. So it's not fatalism because you're not just lying in bed letting the universe happen to you. You can you can have positive effects on the world and negative effects on the world. And if you if you paint great paintings because they are offerings to the goodness in yourself and the goodness in others, you're increasing the well-being of the world. But from abstaining from action, you're decreasing it. Right. By committing by committing selfish actions, you're decreasing the well-being of the world. I mean, don't don't forget that Krishna is you. I know. <laughs> Arjuna, it's very difficult to remember this because Krishna is in everything. Krishna is just an embodiment of the divine, of the divinity of everything. To say that Krishna is Arjuna's charioteer is simply to say that inside of Arjuna is a force that he should let govern his actions. You know what I mean? So it's slightly only half of it's only half accurate to say that the universe is in charge or fate is in charge because Krishna is in you. Krishna is in Arjuna. So for Krishna, so for Arjuna to say, okay, whatever force inside of me, the divine aspect of me, my divine self, you are in charge. This is incredibly empowering. Yeah. So Krishna is literally in the story, literally leading him, but Krishna is also in Arjuna, so Arjuna is leading himself. Well, I mean, the self is fractured. You know, the self contains multitudes. Inside of the self are desires and an ego, but inside right. of the self there is also Krishna saying, I'm here. You listen to me if you want. If you want to not suffer, do, maybe do this. And if, if Arjuna learns to put that part of his nature in charge, who knows what he could accomplish? So how do you how does this all fit into your poetry writing well, and publishing I, practice? No, it's a it's a great book for me to read because poetry is one of those things that nobody pays attention to and so you have to you can't write poetry unless and I haven't mastered this of course you know I'm petty and flawed but I love this bit in chapter 18. This is what Krishna says to Arjuna to renounce one's responsibilities is not fitting. The wise call such deluded renunciation tamasic. To avoid action from fear of difficulty or physical discomfort is rajistic. There is no reward in such renunciation. But to fulfill your responsibilities knowing that they are obligatory, while at the same time desiring nothing for yourself, this is sattvic renunciation. So there are these different terms, different layers of renunciation or non-attachment. Such people are not intimidated by unpleasant work, nor do they seek a job because it is pleasant. So I love this word obligatory. I just think that that's a revelation for me. Every day I have to remind myself that I write poems because it's because I'm obliged to because it's my work because it's because it's it's my offering to Krishna I mean to use this this terminology I don't do it to become known I don't do it for rewards I don't do it to get published I don't do it for job security I do it because I in some sense have to for its own sake So what if you're working at like Burger King but your goal is to eventually be uh, I don't know own a company or something. Yeah. Yeah. How would you not be like, well, this is not my real duty. I have this other greater thing in my future. 
Well, I would oh, I would only answer by quoting Krishna, whatever you do, make it an offering to me. So if you're stuck in a crappy job, like most people are, sadly. Mm, right. <laughs> right. You don't want to wait till you have a job you think is respectable or that you love to do your job well. Yeah, it's going to sound crass and flippant and easy for me to say such things, but I think this is the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. You can make that burger-flipping job, you can give it an element of holiness. Mm. And haven't you seen people, I mean, we've all had interactions with people um, (laughs) at restaurants or, you know, like, that clearly hate their job. You can see it in their face, you can see in the way they interact with you and other people, and then every once in a while, rarely actually, you'll see somebody who seems to be following this advice. <laughs> who has who has every excuse to not be at peace, but somehow are. And yeah, they radiate something very special, and you want to be around them, and you are inspired by them. So... No matter if, where they work. In every corner of the world is the potential to find divinity. Mm-hmm. Arjuna learns the basics of meditation from Krishna. I do remember that he did say that it is better to choose the working life with meditation rather than give yourself completely to a life of meditation, which I thought was interesting because you'd think he would want the extreme kind of form of worship, right? Mm-hmm. But that has, that has actually been a really like uh, pleasantly surprising thing about this book. A very reasonable level of devotion or even worship that he requires. Yeah, there's a, you mean like moments where that he wonderfully says something like, even just a little, even just doing a little bit of this, even just a tiny bit of spiritual practice or spiritual attention yes. can make a huge difference. I know, exactly. And there's so many great moments like that. And Or when he even says, um, there might be people who do this in unusual ways, but their offering is accepted too. Yeah, who believe in other gods yeah. or are part of different cultures, yeah. but they also worship Krishna. Yeah. So we are all already Hindus. Yeah. I love that. No, it's rather a way of living than a religion, right? So it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one reason why this book has such legs. It has such a wide, worldwide audience. Yeah. So um, this is what Krishna says. Just a few of the things Krishna says about meditation. Those who aspire to the state of yoga should seek the self in inner solitude through meditation. With body and mind controlled, they should constantly practice one-pointedness, free from expectations and attachment to material possessions. I love this one-pointedness idea. This is why when you learn the basics of mindfulness meditation, you're asked to focus on the breath. Mm -hmm. And don't be attached to focusing on the breath either, because the mind will waver. Yeah. So when it wavers, don't get upset. But go back to the one-pointedness, attention on the breath. And then Krishna says, select a clean spot, neither too high nor too low, and seat yourself firmly on a cloth, a deerskin, and kusha grass. Then, once seated, strive to still your thoughts. Make your mind one-pointed in meditation, and your heart will be purified. Hold your body, head, and neck firmly in a straight line, and keep your eyes from wandering. With all fears dissolved in the peace of the self and all actions dedicated to Brahman, controlling the mind and fixing it on me, sit in meditation with me as your only goal. I love that so much. I love this. Doesn't it seem like the whole point almost of the book is to be aware, to have awareness of the present moment all the time? Yes. And the goodness within you? Whatever you do, make it an offering to me. That is what awareness is, I think. Yeah. This is what worship is. Worship, awareness, 
everything you do is an offering to Krishna. These are all synonyms for each other. And right? if you pay attention to that crappy job, and you actually focus on what you're doing, the sensation of your body doing it, your yep. feet on the ground, the smells around you, the people you're doing it for, you can make that, if you're fully aware of it, can be, I mean, this is kind of becomes superhuman in a way, but with training, it can be an act of worship through attention. Mm-hmm. I once tried this one uh, mindfulness activity that it turned out to be amazing. I was supposed to eat lunch mindfully, and it wasn't a fancy meal at all. It was like mm. this dry Swedish cracker <laughs> sort of bread with cheese on it, and I don't know what I had on the side, maybe tea or something. And um, yeah, I sat down and I was encouraged to you know think about how I felt before I started and as the food was entering my body and then I was encouraged to think about where like each ingredient came from and then suddenly instead of like watching comedy central while just cramming the food in yeah <laughs> I was picturing like wheat fields and yeah. farmers and wheat fields and I and it was amazing I was filled with gratitude and I thought of like the chicken that had laid the egg and like <laughs> some crammed horrible anti-farm that's sad i know it was sad but then i felt compassion for the chicken and i felt so many things and it's just an example of what just a little awareness can i mean it can completely transform a very mundane um thing i'm the most guilty of multitasking and and according to this this eknath esperan you know in some of his commentaries in the bhagavad-gita says that to do two things at a time is to do a disservice to each of them because you're not giving mm. your full attention to yeah. either. So it's a kind of to give your full attention to one thing is worship. Yeah. So I'm constantly guilty of not doing that. And I, I feel slightly chastised. Mm. One of the things I love about this book is this reminder that it gives us that there is a this word dharma. You're kind of, I, th- I think, you know, as far as I can tell, the best way to interpret this word is our inner nature. And um, Mm. in chapter three, Krishna says, nothing is ever lost in following one's own dharma, but competition in another's dharma breeds fear and insecurity. And this really speaks to me because I'm I'm one of those people that constantly wishes he was more this or less that, more like someone else, constantly self-critical. And I need this reminder that there is a version of me that I already am in a sense divine. That sounds kind of arrogant and narcissistic, but you know what I mean, that I have an inner nature, a dharma that the world needs. Right, and it's okay because everybody else does too. So it's not like I'm the only. Everyone like, else does too. Divine spark, but no one else has my own dharma. Right, you know. So the, actually, like to to become my best contribution to the world would be to become what I am. Yeah, and to let myself be myself, fully myself. Yeah, to get out of my own way, of kind of fuller version of myself. I mean, we met, we know people. I have a colleague. We have a friend who who we love and admire and respect more than most people we know because he seems so at home in his in his self mm-hmm. despite flaws that people can see on the surface you know what i mean despite flaws that he himself is aware of so it's not really about perfection it's not really about scrubbing yourself of flaws although you know of course you do want to improve you do want to improve but it's it's a, it's, a, it's also a matter of just accepting seeing yourself for who you are and respecting that self as something sacred and divine mm-hmm. i love this bit so wonderful. Um, isn't this beautiful? Where Krishna says, By performing one's own work, one worships the creator who dwells in every creature. Such worship brings that person to fulfillment. Mm. 
it is better to perform one's own duties imperfectly than to master the duties of another. Mm-hmm. It would be better if I was a, a less good version of myself than to try to pretend to be someone else. Right. I'm also thinking of it. Sometimes, sometimes it's easier to be nicer to other people from of other families than to your own family. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. I mean, it's not really a problem with our family, but you know, you see sometimes, uh, I don't know, parents that can be more loving towards other people than their own children. Do you know what I mean? I do. But even people like that could, even with those flaws, could become a kind of self-actualized version of themselves. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, this book is very, there's never a sense of judgment. everyone is, you're all sinners and you have to change. Yeah. It feels very warm and welcoming. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't even feel, feel welcoming because you're already in it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? You're already in it. <laughs> um, you're, you are a Krishna. Yeah. Anyway, Krishna goes on to say, um, yeah, it is better to perform the duties. It is better to perform one's own duties imperfectly than to master the duties of another. By fulfilling the obligations he is born with, a person never comes to grief. And this is, this is the part I love the most. No one should abandon duties because he sees defects in them. Every action, every activity is surrounded by defects as a fire is surrounded by smoke. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. So when you paint a painting that you think is a failure, well, of course you do, because when you're burning, you know, when you're luminescent, this will come with defects. Yeah. I think. So Yeah, it's not this focus on perfection. No, it's like this kind of idea of wholeness or self, letting yourself becoming who you are and not who someone else is. And I've been bad at that my whole life. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> I'm getting better. Um, so how should we live? Well, you know, to summarize, this book helps us recognize that we are parts of this higher unity. Mm-hmm. And that it is our obligation to pay due reverence and regard to this unity from which we have arisen. By first of all, paying attention to it and being aware. And by praising it, you know, by praising other fragments of it, like dogs and cats and sandwiches. And again, in a way, awareness is like an amazing act of praise. Yeah, that's right. And by doing so, by being aware and by making everything we perform an act of an offering, this is how we gain for ourselves a fully healthy life and being and psychology, right? We he- we can heal ourselves by reasserting ourselves into that unity mm-hmm. instead of trying to de- detach ourselves narcissistically and say, me, 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 this is all about me. Ekmetheswaran mm-hmm. Ek- also has this wonderful metaphor about the um, a cancer cell in the body. A cancer cell in the body is a cell that has a mind of its own and starts growing out of control and doing things it shouldn't do mm-hmm. and forgets that it has a job to perform inside of a larger sum of parts. So if we act like that in a family, like egotistical, selfish, without regard to how the components of a family fit together, then we're like a cancer cell and we'll only bring pain and destruction on ourselves and our family. You know, But if we see, no, this is, this is my role, this is how I fit and I'm a liver cell or a bone cell and I need to you know, perform that function with all of my heart and soul, then we give optimal health to ourselves and to that larger thing known as the universe, you know? Mm. Can I talk about objections for five minutes? Do you have any objections reading this? Did you ever think, yes, but? Yes. <laughs> well, especially since we were talking about the pearl before, 
I do agree with Steinbeck when he seems to argue that this is desire for greater things is what sets us mm. apart from the animals. So this is something I do think about a lot with meditation. I don't think meditation says be neutral to things, because that seems to also mean be numb. Numbness is not the point. You don't want to be numb in life, because then you can't... You're just closing yourself off to experience. So how... How, where does passion and good passion and good desire fit into the picture? Yeah, that's exactly the point I was going to raise. You're absolutely right to say that it would be a misinterpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, of meditation, of any mindfulness therapy, to say that its goal is to stop you from feeling passion or joy. That's yeah. not its goal ever. Right. They're quite clear about that. Yeah. You welcome these emotions when you get them, but you're not attached to them so that when they're taken away from you, you can say goodbye to them without freaking out. I know, it's just hard. How could but, you feel passion but not be attached? But you're right. There is something about the desire. Mm. The Bhagavad, the, the, I think sins in the Bhagavad Gita are unawareness and desire. Yeah. Those might be the only two. There's a part of me, like a part of you, that says, wait a minute, desire. I've been reading Nietzsche lately, and Stein, you, know, you and Steinbeck are making a very Nietzschean point. Like, we want to want. Mm -hmm. Wanting is important. Yeah. Even if it causes pain. Yeah. And Nietzsche is pro-pain. You know, right. the Bhagavad Gita is anti-pain. It wants it wants to eliminate pain. And of course, that's a noble endeavor. Yeah. But there is some pain, there is some suffering that is good mm. that we need for our bodies mm -hmm. and our souls mm -hmm. to want things, you know, like um yeah, to be wildly passionate, to be exuberant, to be caught in a frenzy. Yeah, like I'm thinking of Ulysses, the poem. Yes. That seems very anti-Bhagavad <laughs> Gita. <laughs> yes, but to strive to seek to find be, but not have, to yield. Yeah. That seems like that's a divine thing to me, I think. Yeah. And somewhere Nietzsche says something like, the only purpose of life is to... Oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, what is it? <laughs> you can't stop there. Yeah, you're going to want to... Well, okay, let me find this. <laughs> Because I, I was reading and I wrote this down and I thought, wow, that's really good. Nietzsche says, I know of no better life purpose than to perish in attempting the great and the impossible. Mm. I know of no better life purpose than to perish in attempting the great and the impossible. Running a marathon. <laughs> yeah, I quite like that. Like it's Don Quixote-esque in the sense that like, isn't that what Jesus was doing? You know, like he perished attempting the impossible. I think humans are different from animals. We're not candle flames. I don't know if we're meant to be unwavering. I think we want to waver. I think wavering is good. Now, so we've just contradicted what we said for the past hour. L let me try to rescue us and say that the Bhagavad Gita teaches us that what we want is to be in control of the wavering. You know, like most of us, including me, especially me, are slaves to our cravings and desires and our emotions and our contexts. Mm -hmm. If I get bad news, I'm upset. Yeah. Something good happens to me. I'm totally, uh, I become addicted to that. Yeah. So I'm not in control. The Bhagavad, and that's bad. I mean, that's obviously bad. Mm -hmm. Self-evidently bad. And the Bhagavad Gita teaches us that we should be in control and begins to teach us how we can become in control of those. But I think we want to also be in such control that we can let go of control and say to the frenzy, welcome, or the passion, or the desire. To me, the ideal scenario is one in which we are in control of our cravings and desires. And since we're in control of our cravings and desires, we have the power to strategically let go of that control and become subjected to them from time to time. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Isn't it? We, I mean, we want to become lost in our cravings and desires sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we, that makes sense. We want to strive irrationally. We want to feel extremes. We want to feel extreme sadness and extreme joy. I think this is good. Yeah. But we want to be in control of when and how we want that. So to internalize and to practice the lessons of the Bhagavad Gita, I think, would give us the ability to say, okay, now I'm going to let that go and give in to my craving for cheesecake or get upset about this thing or have this wild frenzy while listening to Wagner or something, you know? Maybe this whole idea of attachment is just don't be unwilling to accept things as they change. We can love things passionately and be extremely, I don't know, we can be passionate about things, but then when the time comes, when these things change, that's where we can't fall apart. Yeah, we need these lessons in that's, order to not fall apart. That's when we accept the transitory nature of things. So passion, yes, but also... Don't be um, so blinded by it that you can't be aware of the fact that things change and you don't have control over certain things. Yeah, Krishna says, when meditation is mastered, the mind is unwavering like the flame of a lamp in a windless place. Now, I don't want to live my entire life like the flame of a lamp in a windless place. I want to flicker mm -hmm. back and forth between extremes. Yeah, we're not what, robots. What I want to be is the kind of flame that can stop flickering when it wants to, and start flickering when it wants to. Currently, I am not. I, the wind is in control. But I want to be the kind of flame that says, okay, I'll let go for a while. I'll let go of control for a while. Mm. And enjoy the wind. And then say, okay, I'm sick of that. I'm sick of being blown around here. Back to control. Yeah, and I think that's, that is part of meditation, actually. You know, sometimes, well, according to my Headspace app. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I mean, this is... <laughs> Which is based in all of these ideas That's I'm true. learning, <laughs> reading the Bhagavad Gita. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah, there's a there's a moment where, you know, you focus on the breath, but then you let go of that focus and you let your mind do whatever it wants to for a while. And then you kind of mm. start focusing um, on the breath again. And I think that that must be what you're talking about, because then you are still the one in control, right. but you're... You you yeah. can choose frenzy if you want frenzy. Yeah. Frenzy is good sometimes. You need to let your mind flicker. Final thoughts? <laughs> That's a good final thought. Yeah. Today's poem of the day is by a poet named Kabir, who was a 15th century Indian poet and mystic. He's often claimed by Muslims as well as Hindus as a literary and religious figure. And this is a short little poem by him that I think has echoes to the Bhagavad Gita. Brother, I've seen some astonishing sights. A lion keeping watch over pasturing cows a mother delivered after her son was, a guru prostrated before his disciples, fish spawning on treetops, a cat carrying away a dog, a gunny sack driving a bullock cart, a buffalo going out to graze, sitting on a horse, a tree with its branches in the earth, its roots in the sky, a tree with flowering roots. This verse, says Kabir, is your key to the universe, if you can figure it out.
hope you enjoyed that conversation. Next up, I think Claire and I will be reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which I'm really looking forward to. So until next time. <laughs>